or you know someone who needs one, please feel free to take one uh, as our gift to you. So, again, that's John 4, 46 through 54. Please stand as you are able for the reading of God's word. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour uh, when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that this was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live, and he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Andrew. Good morning. My name is Sergei Marchenko. I'm one of the pastors and elders here, and I have the privilege of opening God's Word with you this morning. And I'd like you to keep your Bibles open to John chapter 4. Um, I'm going to make one announcement. We have a, a women's Bible study that's starting on June 22nd, which is a Thursday night. It's in your bulletin, so if you are interested in attending that, that's a great summer thing to do. I think it's a six-week commitment, and I'm sure it will be very beneficial to you. I'm going to release the children between two years old and third grade. And if you're new here, you can take your children that way in the foyer. There will be somebody there to assist you and and let you know where they should be going. After taking a break, uh, we took a two-week break for Ascension and Pentecost as we focused on those two major events in the redemptive history. We're coming back now to our series uh, from the Gospel of John where we're looking at particular conversations that Jesus had with various individuals. And our goal is twofold in this series. Uh, One is we want to cultivate our own conversation with Christ. So we want to see how Christ is interacting with different people and find ourselves identifying with one of those or more characters in the book of John. The second goal is we want to learn from Jesus how to talk to other people about him. And so as we are uh, striving to achieve this vision of having this church be full of new disciples from our community, we need to learn how to to talk to others about Jesus. And he models that for us in a very different context and with very, very different individuals. So I, I think that's helpful in that way as well. So today, this morning, we're looking at a conversation between Jesus and a desperate father pleading with Jesus to heal his child, his son. So I'm going to look at this text under four headings. And if you want to use sermon notes in your bulletin or just take notes, excuse me. Um, There are four headings. There's the pressing need, the powerful word, proper faith, and the present choice. Pressing need, powerful word, proper faith, and present choice. I think this text is very relevant to us today. I think we'll find ourselves wrestling with some of the same issues that 
Jesus is talking about in this text. And my, my prayer is and my hope is that we'll walk away changed by his word. So let's look at how the story starts. Jesus returns to Galilee, which is sort of his area where he, he grew up, uh, roughly. And, and he specifically comes to Cana, where he had made the water into wine from chapter 2 of John. So we looked at that story a few weeks ago. Undoubtedly, the residents of Cana are very excited. This miracle worker is coming back. He's coming back from uh, a time that he spent in Jerusalem over the, the major religious holiday. And so some of the people from that area, some of the Galileans, have gone to Jerusalem and they've witnessed various miracles that he performed there. They remember now the, 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 the miracle at Cana, the wedding miracle, is, the information is spread. And Jesus has quite a reputation at this point. And so I would imagine that the, the whole town is excited and that the, the neighboring towns are excited that in their area uh, here is this miracle worker. So a man in Capernaum, which is about 20 miles away, hears that Jesus is back in Cana. This miracle worker is back in Cana, and so he comes down to ask for Jesus' help. Now, who was this man? We need to understand who he was. We only know him as an official. That's all we know about him. He's, he's an official with a son who was sick. Now, an official is most likely a royal official, somebody who most likely is employed in the, in the royal court of King Herod. So this is a very powerful, very wealthy, very important person. And he comes to Jesus because he is in desperate need. Now, it's hard for us to know what exactly he knew about Jesus. We, we don't know. We know at least, at the very least, that he knew that Jesus can do these, these powerful miracles because of the reputation that is now, now spread. We don't know if he knew anything else or if he believed anything else about Jesus. But whatever he knew was enough for him to come down 20 miles away, probably riding a horse as fast as he could to get to Jesus and to ask him to heal his son. His son is dying. This is the last hope kind of a scenario. He's coming to Jesus and he's asking this newly famous miracle worker to heal his child. Now, I don't want us to miss how desperate the situation is. For a royal official to personally rush to some village and ask a carpenter-turned-miracle worker-turned-healer for help he must have been desperate. With all his resources, with all his connections, he couldn't bring help to his son. And so this seems like a last resort kind of a thing. And so forgetting his status, forgetting his connections and resources and wealth and influence, he just goes to the one person he thinks might, might be able to help him, might be able to heal his son who is now dying. In the mind of this official, when he returns home, his son may be already dead. So he's coming to Jesus, and he pleads with him, please, come down, come to my house, do whatever you do, do whatever you got to do, do whatever crazy mojo voodoo thing you do, and heal my son. Comes to Jesus with that request. Now, many of us parents have experienced a similar desperation. Some of you 
were in a hospital with your child. Some of you have gone to people that maybe have done some experimental medicine. And there's a desperation in your plea when you say, please do something to help my child. If you don't have children, if you haven't had that kind of a situation, you may have gone through the same thing with your parent, the same thing with, with your friend, your neighbor, where you're coming to someone and you're saying, please, please heal, help, help the person I love. I hope we can tap into that feeling to identify with what this official is coming with to Jesus. And I remember my daughter Polly had a stroke um, a few years ago, and, and I remember myself and my wife in the ER and talking to the doctors and saying, do, do something, help us. It's that feeling of desperation. There's a pressing need that has to be addressed right now or the child might die. Now look at how Jesus, so keep that in mind, right? This, this desperate need that, that the official comes with. Now, notice how Jesus responds to this desperate parent. The official says, come down, please, come down and help my child. He's dying. And Jesus says, this is verse 48, Jesus says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. What? What What is he saying? The official says, come help my child, he's dying. And Jesus seemingly talks about the kind of faith that is important. He gives a little remark on the nature of faith. Now, the official is not concerned with faith. He's not looking for signs and wonders. He, he just wants his child to be well. And yet Jesus talks about signs and wonders and faith. There's a rebuke here. He rebukes the official. He says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. What is he talking about? It seems very strange to respond to a desperate parent like that. Unless, unless Jesus knows that there's a much greater need that must be addressed. If the greatest need is the health of the child, then it makes no sense that Jesus would respond in that way. It seems very insensitive, it seems rude, it seems, he seems aloof and distant. But if he is even more perceptive than, than we think, if he knows exactly what a greater, deeper need is, this makes perfect sense. Jesus responds in line with the belief that the greatest need the official has is not the health of his child, but in fact, faith in Jesus. Now this is different for us. If I go, if I go to the hospital with my child who's dying, and I come to the doctor and you say, Doctor, please, please help my child. And the doctor says, well, you know what kind of faith really matters? I would say, what are you talking about? Help my kid. But if the doctor knows that there's a greater need, that makes sense. Now here's an example. You go to a doctor and maybe you have insomnia and you go, Doctor, please help me. I just can't sleep. I'm getting kind of desperate here. And the doctor says, well, let's run some tests. Let's just rule things out. As they run the test, they, they take your blood and they realize there's a blood infection that's killing you. And it has to be treated immediately. It makes perfect sense for the doctor to focus on that and not your insomnia. Because they've discovered something more important, something deeper. And that's what's happening here. Jesus is exposing a much greater need. And that need is 
for the faith in him that produces life. So this official comes and says, please save my child, make him live, right? He preserve his life. And Jesus says, but you too need life. And that life comes through faith in me. It's crucial for us to understand that Jesus is looking beyond the request. This is totally consistent with the book of John. John is obsessed with faith. This whole book is really about faith. He's constantly talking about the right kind of faith. He's talking about the results of faith as in life, eternal life coming into someone's existence. Look at John 20, verses 30 and 31. This is where John tells us why he wrote this gospel at all. 20, John 20, verse 30 and 31. It says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. So there's more that Jesus did. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John says, I'm writing this book so that you would believe in Jesus, that he is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah, he's the Christ, he's the Savior, and by believing you may have life in his name. So John says, our greatest need is life. The means of getting that life from God, and by the way, he's talking about a different quality of life. It's not just ongoing physical existence, but it's a full life of God. It's this full well-being, full health that comes through God, that extends into eternity, where death is banished, and we are living fully, abundantly, Jesus says. John thinks that's our greatest need, and we get it by faith in Jesus. That's why he writes a book which is mostly about faith. Because that's how we get life. And we don't have Jesus, we don't have life. We don't have faith, we don't have Jesus, we don't have life. We have faith, the right kind of faith. We have Jesus, we have life. That's the argument of the book. And so when Jesus says to the official, let's talk about the right kind of faith, he's saying, let's talk about your greatest need. Let's talk about how life gets into your life. And you get it through this kind of faith in me. So he's not rejecting his request, which we know he fulfills. But he's getting much deeper. He goes beyond what this person asks. It's John's worldview, it's Jesus' worldview, and should be our worldview as well. Our greatest need is not physical healing, though it is a legitimate need. Our greatest need is life of God being poured out into our existence. And that comes through faith in Christ. And it's a particular kind of faith in a particular kind of Christ. Now, one application we have to draw from here is that there are deeper needs beyond perceived needs. There is the fundamental and most important need, which is faith in Jesus that leads to life. Because only that kind of faith, that right kind of faith, is the conduit through which life flows. So as we serve people, as we talk about reaching our community, right, we want to serve our community. We want to address all sorts of needs. And please be praying that God would bring those needs to us so we can help. But as we address all these different kind of needs, we must also go beyond those needs and get to the fundamental, ultimate need for Jesus. If we haven't gotten there, beyond the perceived needs, 
food and shelter and education, health. Those are actual needs. They're good. There needs to be to be addressed. But beyond that is the ultimate need for Jesus. And if we haven't gotten beyond those perceived needs, we haven't really helped people. We've helped them a little bit, but we really haven't helped them fully. If they don't have faith, the people we serve, if they don't have faith, they may have food, we may, we may help them in other ways, they may get healed, but if they don't have faith in Jesus, the right kind of faith, they don't have life. However effective we may be in addressing their particular perceived needs. So if you are here at church this morning, and maybe you're new, maybe you've been coming for a long time, and you're saying, I, I'm here because... I need help in my marriage. I'm here because my children need, need to behave better and it's good to have other peers around them. Or maybe I'm here because my parents come here and I need to be with my parents. Or my spouse is here and so I'm coming in honor of my spouse. Those may be reasons. Or maybe I just need help because I need money for medicine. That's why I'm here. Whatever the reason is. Those are all legitimate things that the church needs to be addressing. And yet, and yet, if I haven't pushed you beyond those things and talked to you about Jesus and your need for Him, I haven't done my job and the church hasn't done her job. We have to get beyond that to the fundamental need for faith in Jesus that brings life. That's the present need. Now, how does Jesus... What does he do when the official again asks him to come down and heal his child? So the official seemingly ignores the statement about the true kind of faith. And so he asks him again to come down and heal his son. And Jesus says, this is verse 50. And this is where his powerful word is stated. Jesus says, go, your son will live. Go, your son will live. He refuses to go to the official's house as was requested. But he promises healing nonetheless. He gives his word. He makes a promise. And there's urgency, there's finality, there's decisiveness in that promise. And here's an amazing thing. The official actually believes what Jesus just said. He simply takes Jesus at his word and assumes that his son will be okay. He just believes his word. Jesus says it and he says, okay. No request for a sign, no request for evidence or proof. He doesn't beg him, I, I know you said it, but let's come with me, let's make sure. He doesn't say any of that. He goes on his way after placing his trust in what Jesus said. The next day, he goes back to Capernaum, is greeted by his servants, maybe on the way, maybe they're running out to greet him, and they report to him that his son is, in fact, better. He's recovered. The fever left him. He's recovered. He's doing well. The official asks a very important question here. Now, not usually something we would ask when somebody says, your child is better. I don't usually ask, well, what, what time? Excuse me. What time did fever break? Don't ask that. But for him, this is very important. He says, what time did his recovery start, did his fever broke? What time was that? And they say about seventh hour, which is one in the afternoon. And he says, 
that is exactly when Jesus said that my son will, will live. And so he connects the dots. When Jesus said that the child will live is when actually the child started getting better. The healing happened right when Jesus said that the son Jesus also addresses a much deeper need, which is for the life of God to come into that whole family, not just in the official's life, but the whole family. The whole household believes. So it's the official, it's his spouse, maybe other children, all the servants. Everybody believes in Jesus, and they all receive life. Welcome into God's Household, welcome into God's kingdom, eternal life. They're enjoying a relationship with God forever. That happens because they believe in Jesus' word. So that word is powerful not just to heal someone physically, but it's also powerful to bring this whole new quality of life into this particular household. There's been that God who will never live this world. Jesus then, and when the poor, that's our problem, anything he's going to is in commitment. So he says, someone gets, he says that whole thing gets our This is the faith, right? Necessary to connect us with God and receive life from him, which is the whole book of John is about that. The question is, what kind of faith is it? Very important question. Most religions, most people in general believe faith is a positive thing. It's something that is attractive. It's an attractive quality to be to have faith. But what is it? So let's go back to verse 48 and let's examine what this proper faith is because Jesus starts there. He says you have to have this kind of faith to receive life. Verse 48, Jesus says, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will be seen. You can have this kind of faith, but that's not the right kind of faith to receive life. Now, seemingly, he says, if you only believe in me because I did something amazing in your life, right, that's no good. But then the question arises, why does he keep doing amazing things in our lives? He performs the miracle that the official requested. He is contrasting superficial faith that depends on a sign or miracle with the true and deeper faith that may very well be prompted by a miracle or a sign, but in its essence it depends on Christ's words. The difference is not between wrong and right as much as it is between the superficial and the substantial the incomplete and inefficient and the full, rich, life-giving faith. So the contrast here isn't, well, don't, don't, don't pay any attention to the signs because it's the wrong kind of faith. And do only pay attention to my words. That's not the contrast. The contrast is, if your faith only pays attention to the signs and you don't pay attention to the words... That's not enough. It's incomplete. It's superficial. But if your faith, prompted by signs, leads you to God's words, that's the real faith. 
it's important that John calls Jesus' miracles signs. Because these are signs. Signs point to something. The purpose of a sign is not to draw your attention to the sign itself, but to draw your attention to something that the sign is pointing to. I, I drove my daughter to O'Hare yesterday, and we, we passed a toll booth, which makes me a little angry every time I pass a toll booth, because I feel like 30 years is enough to pay for the highway. But <laughs> we passed through the, to, the toll booth, and you see, it's, it's so funny, on the side, there's like this, this open area and you have like literally hundreds of signs that are just kind of stacked and stored there so i suppose they pull out the ones they want or whatever when they they change the different signs and they're all just like literally hundreds of signs just stacked there those are useless they mean nothing because they don't point to anything and they're just stored there until they are needed but the signs that are actually posted by the tollway those are the important ones because they tell you where to go the signs that are stored away, they, they have no purpose. But the signs that are posted point us to where we need to go. So the sign, my faith is not in the sign, but my faith is through the sign to get somewhere where I'm going. So when Jesus performs a miracle, it's a sign to who he is, to what he says. And if we simply limit our faith to the sign itself, we're saying, I believe in Jesus because of the sign, Jesus says, that's not the right kind of faith. It doesn't go far enough. It doesn't get deep enough to me. But if a sign serves as a means to get to Jesus, to what he says, that's good. That's the purpose of the sign. That's why the book of John is full of signs. They get you somewhere. But if you don't go there, they're useless. The faith that saves, the faith that brings life, the faith that reconciles us to God is a faith that goes beyond the signs and to Christ's words. Uh, we had some, some friends in town, and we went to a Cardinals game on Friday night. We were in section 172, which is important to my story. Row 15. At the back of us is a wall where when, when the home pitcher strikes someone out, they put a K, a, a, K, a sign, on the hook. And eventually it moves, and every, every, wherever, how many strikeouts you get, that's how many people get to put up the sign. So wherever you're sitting, you get to put up the giant K, and usually they show it on the screen. Very exciting. I saw it, you see it on TV, it's like, I hope that person gets to put up that K, you know. So we're sitting in that section, which, of course, I was totally oblivious until we got there and they started putting up Ks out there. Very exciting. So my daughter, Elena, gets to put up the K. Uh, towards the end of, of the inning. It's very exciting. It's a sign, right, that points to something that's happening on the field. But if we were only concerned with strikeouts, or if we were only concerned... I know this is a deep sports analogy. I'm sorry. <laughs> Bear with me. If you don't care about sports, I'll give you another analogy in two minutes, okay? If I only cared about home runs or strikeouts, how would you describe me as a fan? You would say, yeah, kind of a casual fan, right? He just wants to go to the game and see a home run and see the fireworks. Or he just, he just wants to put the K up in his section. He doesn't really care about the game itself. He just cares about the excitement, the, the miracles, the wonders, the signs. How would you describe a fan that only cares about superficial things in the game? 
Some would, some you would say a Cubs fan, maybe. <laughs> but that's not a real fan, right? If you only care about those exciting, spectacular things, but you don't care about the outcome of the game, if you don't care if your team wins or loses, you're just having a good time at the ballpark, that's not real fandom, is it? The same way here, Jesus says, if you only care about the signs and wonders, but you don't care about what I say, you're not going deep enough. You're here, you're with me, you're listening, but you're not going deep enough. That's not the kind of faith through which life comes into your existence. Now let's apply this distinction between a superficial faith that is based on things God does in your life, miracles and wonders, whatever it is, and we'll expand that. On the one hand, the superficial faith. And on the other hand, the deep faith that's based on his words and his promises that saves and gives life. Let's apply it to our own circumstances, our own situation. If a church sees the worship service as a performance able to move the people, rather than a gathering around God's word, it is cultivating a superficial faith. Signs are important, but what are they pointing to? And if we simply stop at signs, we're creating and cultivating a superficial kind of faith that doesn't save, it doesn't give life. If a church is concerned with miraculous manifestations of God's power, like healings, for example, rather than the proclamation of the gospel, it is cultivating a superficial faith. That sounds counterintuitive because if you go to a church and somebody gets healed, man, this is exciting, right? But if that is the focus and you don't hear Christ's words in that service, your faith is, is inevitably going to be based on that event, on that miracle. That may be a legitimate thing, but it's not enough to have a vibrant faith that gives you life from God. It has to be based in God's words in Christ. This is what Jesus is saying. And so carefully sorting through this as he's dealing with a desperate father who just wants his son to get healed. He gives him a much greater gift by pointing, this is the right kind of faith. Believe my words. Yes, I will do a sign. And to other people, that sign is going to actually bring them to Jesus. But the point here is my words. Believe my words. And he does and in fact, receives life from Jesus. Now, as I talk about it, you say, well, of course, it's a Bible church, Shadow Bible Church. Of course you're going to say that. Let's organize our services around the Bible. Let's read the Bible. Of course you're going to talk about the Word of God because it's a Bible church. I'm going to turn it around and flip it around and say, we are a Bible church because this is true. Because this is what Jesus wants. He wants us to gather around His Word. He wants us, when we gather, to listen to his word preached, to accept it with joy, to obey it fully. He wants us to sing songs that are based in his word. He wants us to pray prayers that are repeating his words back and claiming his promises. That's what he wants, because that's the kind of faith that gets life from God. And that's the ultimate need. We need more God. We need more of his life. And that's the faith that gets us there. On a more individual level, so if we get away from kind of how churches are, on a more individual level, many people believe, and I'm going to put it in quotes, believe 
when they experience something remarkable. For example, somebody may say, I believe because God helped me overcome my addiction. God does that. Sure, God can do that. God does that. And so having experienced a victory over a particular addiction in your life and crediting God with it, someone say, I believe. But I've seen people like that fall away very quickly. Why? Because their faith is not rooted in God's Word. It's just rooted in the experience. And maybe a great experience, maybe an amazing experience of God's power. But it's an experience of God's power that doesn't quite get them to the God Himself. And unless you go beyond the sign and you say, God has delivered me from this addiction, but now I can have God. I've seen His power, but now I have the God of power. I've seen His love, but now I have the God of love. And He is speaking to me. He is revealing Himself to me, and this is where my faith rests. Your faith is superficial. It's insufficient. It's not enough to experience something remarkable in your life that God does. It's not enough. That doesn't give you life. That just addresses a particular need. You have to go beyond that to get to the God who speaks. The God who reveals Himself to us. Somebody may say, I believe because God helped me fix my marriage. God fixes marriages. God heals all sorts of relationships. But if I don't go beyond that, my faith is superficial. Turn to me to John 6. This is a great chapter illustrating exactly what Jesus is talking about, the difference between a faith that is based on miracles and experiences and a faith that is ultimately based in His Word. Jesus feeds the 5,000. He walks on water, both incredible miracles, incredible signs. Lots of people are following Him. Why are they following Him? They've seen remarkable things. They've been fed supernaturally, miraculously by someone. That's incredible. And so they're following him. They're expecting more miracles to happen. And more miracles do happen with God. And then Jesus starts speaking. And he starts revealing himself in his words to the crowds. And he says things like, you need to eat my flesh to have life. You need to drink my blood to have life. And they say, this is a hard saying. Yes, it's a hard saying. Jesus says, eat my, blood, eat my flesh and drink my blood, and then you will have life from God. He's saying, I am the bread from heaven. They're saying, we don't understand. We can't accept that. That makes no sense to us. And they leave. They saw the miracles. All these people saw the miracles. They were fed, literally fed by Jesus through a miraculous multiplication of loaves and fishes. They were there. But when Jesus speaks, they don't place their faith in, their wor- in his words. And they leave. And then Jesus turns to his disciples. This is John 6, verses 66 and following. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So that's the people who didn't accept the word and, and they left. So Jesus said to the twelve, the twelve disciples, his closest friends here. Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. 
Do you think that Peter understands any more than the people who had left what Jesus was talking about? I don't think so. But he says we have nowhere else to go because you have the words of eternal life. You are speaking to us and our faith is based on what you're saying, though we may not even understand all of it. But we have come to believe you are the Holy One of Israel. You are the Messiah, you're the Savior of the world. And we're going to place our trust in you through the words that you're speaking to us. That's the distinction. You have people who have seen the signs, and those signs pointed to Jesus, but they never got to Jesus. When Jesus started speaking to them, they left. And you have the disciples who saw the signs, and they heard what Jesus was saying. And they're saying, we're going to stay with you because you have the words of eternal life. Not because we have seen the fishes, but because you have the words of eternal life. And so that brings us to my final point in the most difficult part of the sermon. How do we apply that? This text leaves us with a choice, a challenge, a question. Remember that Jesus said in verse 48, that's, that's the key verse that on, on which everything hangs in this passage. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. You as plural, it includes us. He is addressing anyone who is following him. And he's rebuking us, and he's asking us, what kind of faith do you have? Is your faith based on signs only, or on Christ's words to which those signs point? Very important question. What is your faith like? Are you with Jesus because you saw him do something amazing in your life? Or are you with him ultimately because you have believed his words? Because he speaks and you say, I believe and I take him at his word. If God only gave you his word, would it be enough? That's the question. Signs point to Jesus. They point to his words. They point to the gospel. But if you didn't have the signs, would his word, to which those signs are supposed to point, would that, the word itself, be enough for you? Would it be sufficient for you? Because in Scripture, the word makes the difference, not the signs. The signs point to the word. And if you have the word, you have it. You have the whole thing. If you only have the signs and don't have the word, you have very little. And so the question is, if you only had the word, would it be enough? The official only had the word. He came to Jesus, he says, heal my son. Jesus says, go, your son will live. And he believed. There's an amazing thing in this passage that happened. We know, timeline that at 1 o'clock in the afternoon, the official is talking to Jesus, and Jesus says, your son will live. At the very moment, in a different town, 20 miles away, the son, in fact, recovers. So we know that. But we also know that the conversation happens about the timing the next day. It's not the same day. When he meets the servants, they're telling him, yesterday, at 1 o'clock in the afternoon, your son recovered. So this is a day later. It's only 20 miles away. If my child is sick, right, and it's 1 o'clock in the morning, it takes me a couple hours to get where the child is, I'm not staying in town overnight. 
I'm getting to the child. The official stays the whole afternoon, evening, and night and only returns to Capernaum the next day. Why? We don't know for sure. We don't know if he stuck around to listen to Jesus, if he had some official business in Cana. I don't know. But I'm going to venture a guess based on the faith that he exhibits, that he was so sure that his son was well, they didn't need to hurry. He just said, I'll go back tomorrow. My son is okay. He only had the word, but he took Jesus at his word, and he rested in that promise. To the point where he didn't need to go back quickly. Went back the next day. So when Jesus gives you his word, Is it enough? Or is your faith really based on the remarkable, spectacular thing God has done or might do in your life? Those are not bad. But if that's the basis of your faith, it's a superficial faith. Do you believe Christ's words? When Jesus died on the cross, said, It is finished. He said, It is finished. Do you believe it? Do you take him at his word? As he was dying for your sins, he said, it is finished. What did he mean? It's done. The payment for sins has been offered. Your sins have been cleared away. Your sins are now not a problem between you and God. It is finished. He has completed the work of redemption. So now you can have a relationship with God. So by faith you can have life. Do you take him at his word? He said that. Is your faith based in what he says? Because he said it's finished. Romans 8, it says, Now there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you believe that? Do you think Jesus is lying to you when he says it is finished, there's no condemnation, and you say, "Eh, but I, I feel like I need to do a little better for him. To really have no condemnation. To really deal with my guilt, I need, to, I need to fix my life a little bit. Do you take him at his word? When Jesus says, Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. When he said, Jesus says that, Come to me, all who labor, all who are heavy laden, all who are tired, all who are struggling, and I will give you rest. He promises rest. Do you believe that he means what he says? You take it seriously. He's offering you rest. He's saying, I will give you rest. Jesus says that. Do you believe that? When Jesus promises, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Leaving and forsaking is the same thing. He said it twice. Just so we don't miss the point. I'm not going to leave you nor am I going to leave you, is what he's saying. So I'm not going to leave you. He says that to us. Are we taking him at his word? So when it feels like he's absent, are we going to go based on signs and wonders or faith in what he says? There's another great promise. For those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who love God, for us, his followers, all things work together for good. His word says that to us. The question is, do we believe it? Do we believe it? Or do we want more proof? 
when we call our insurance company and we realize that there's a mess that somebody's made out of our insurance, do we believe in that moment that all things work together for our good? When there's sickness and struggle and depression and trouble in the home and trouble at school, do we believe that what Jesus says is true, that all those things work together for our good? Regardless whether we see it in the moment. Faith is not based on seeing. It's based on what we hear from God through Christ. To believe that God's word is sufficient is to believe that Jesus himself is sufficient for us because Jesus is the incarnate word. The revelation of God comes through Jesus to us. He's the self-revelation of God. Do you believe in him? To believe in God's word is to believe in Jesus. He's the one to whom all signs point to. His word, the gospel, brings life. So I'll leave you with that. Do you believe in Jesus, in his word? We're going to come to the table, and here we see signs. There's bread and cup. They point to the promises of God. They tell us, they show us that his death, Jesus' death, saves us from our sins, his body broken, that his life, this resurrection life, includes us into a new eternal covenant with God. We are secure in our relationship with him because of grace. Those are signs. But our faith is not in the signs. So if you walk away and say, I am a believer because I took communion today, or I was at church, or I heard a sermon... Your faith is based in signs, invisible things, physical things. But if through the sign you go beyond and you get to Jesus, your faith is now anchored in the real thing. And that's the faith that gives you life. So by faith, we can accept the hard saying from John 6, Whoever feeds on me, Jesus says, whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. When we come to the table, we feed, feed on Jesus. By faith, we come in contact with him. And by faith, we are nourished spiritually. And life of God is poured into our existence. Will you take Christ at his word that if you feast on him, you will also live because of him. As you come to the table, if you are a believer, as in you have placed your faith in his word, this is a tremendous encouragement to you. To come to the table together with others is a tremendous encouragement and nourishment of your faith. If you're not a believer, I ask you not to come to the table. At best, it's useless. At worst, you're dealing with something you can't handle without God. But, even as you don't come to the table, come to Jesus. Take him at his word. He's speaking to you this morning, and he says on the cross, it is finished, it is finished for you. He says there's no condemnation. If you're in Christ Jesus, there can be no condemnation for you. He's calling you to come to him because you're tired and you're weary and you're heavy laden. Let's go come to him. Take him at his word that he will give you rest, that he will give you forgiveness, that he will give you a new life with God. 
We'll come forward as we sing. We'll take communion in front, or you can take it back to your seats if you would like to get you more time to reflect on the gospel. If you're unable to come forward, an elder will bring communion to you, so just raise your hand. If you're new here and you need assistance, we would love to come and help you in that way. If you're on the balconies, just walk forward where you are. There are tables set up for you there. So let's pray and prepare for the Lord's table. Father, we praise you that you know our greatest need, that you know that we need you more than we need anything else, physical healing, emotional stability, financial prosperity, relationships. All of those are our needs, but the ultimate need is you and life with you. Thank you that you don't settle for just blessing us in a superficial way, but that you get at the root of our struggle and that you give us a gift that addresses the deepest, ultimate need. I am grateful, too, that you are not settling for a superficial faith that doesn't understand these realities, that only sees signs and wonders and follows you for as long as there are signs and wonders. Lord, I am grateful that you, your Holy Spirit, cultivates this deep, real faith that is based in what you say, because you are truthful, because you are faithful, because you are loving and powerful, and what you say is what matters to us. So give us this faith to accept your word, to believe and to take Jesus at his word. I pray that you would forgive us for many times when we have rejected your word. For many of us who are not reading your word, are not trusting your word, are ignoring portions of your word, we ask for your forgiveness. And we pray that now as we come to the table, we would feed on Christ and our faith would deepen and strengthen and we would have more life of God in our existence. The Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Let's do it together.